Good day, everyone, and welcome to Current Affairs. I'm Frank Downhauer, Managing Director of the Center for Anthroposophical Endeavors. It is my honor to serve as your host for Boyd Collins' talk on the metaverse. Boyd has extensive experience in online content management and development of enhanced user engagement techniques. And I think you'll find he has many insights into the current emergence of today's topic. With that said, what is our current state of affairs? To put today's talk in context, we live now more than ever in a world seemingly in chaos. We have wars, inflation, viruses, and all sorts of shortages in products and food, which may get even worse by the end of this year. There are a great many things that occupy our lives on a daily basis with a near future that is so uncertain and quite frankly, kind of scary for many. How could there be anything more serious than all of what's happening right now to be concerned about? What very few seem to be aware of are the things that are being put into place behind all this chaos and a well-planned direction for humanity's future. Two of the most prominent directions are outer space, but more relevant for today's talk, inner space or extended reality, what is being called by Facebook as the metaverse. Today, most of us use the internet and other enhanced features of the internet, such as purchasing goods and services to having directions being spoken to us while we drive, these services are further enhanced by virtual assistants in the shape of Amazon Alexa and Apple Cirrus that we can talk to and ask it things like, what's the weather or turning on the lights in the furnace before we arrive home. We don't think much about these technological enhancements because all of, all of this has slowly been introduced to us over years and made to be invaluable to our everyday lives. But how did we get here? And what's the next step after this? We don't need to look any further than 50 years ago when society in mass was first introduced to the video games, such as Atari's Pong. The 80s had cell phones introduced to the public, such as Motorola's brick phone, for those who remember those. By the early 90s, is when the internet came, became something that the public could now take advantage of with the first web browser and internet search engine with its basic link search. But all that changed by 1998 when Google came on the scene with its new page rank algorithm. During the same year, a company called Alpha World developed the first virtual world called Active World followed by Second Life a few years later in 2003, where you could purchase things with real money for your virtual avatar. This was followed by World of Warcraft next year in its ever-expanding multiplayer universe. Cell phones in the early 2000s were internet-capable with some business suites, but once again, all of this changed in 2007 when Apple rolled out its new iPhone version one with it with introduction of the app. Everything changed from just selling products to a very lucrative business of collecting and selling personal data. 
Google the year before acquired DoubleClick and cemented its ad empire. Facebook also in 2007 <clears throat> changed its company strategy to one of selling its users' data to marketing companies. Amazon came out with its Kindle the same year, moving the whole publishing empire into the digital age. Yes, 2007 was the year that you and I became a product for all for sale. Everything after 2007 was about the collection of every aspect of human condition, from what we type or tap or where we looked to where we go, what we watch and how we eat and sleep. Everything is monitored and collected to be used to anticipate our every move and influence our every action. AI is calculating, efficient and exact. Humans are chaotic, erratic and clumsy. It's only logical that for everything in the world to be harmonious and peaceful, that humanity should be managed with conditions that are tailored for the utopia that we so desperately are made to want to be created. We see around us horrors that we as people create for ourselves. These horrors we fixate on as if we must, because that is what's real right now. It is every day in the news, and we're made to fight each other over the nuances of this horror, to be constantly at each other, which makes things seemingly even more desperate. But what is really all this about? How are we not seeing the forest for the trees? Thankfully, there are some that have the trees squarely in sight for the big picture of the forest. And one of these individuals is today's speaker, Boyd Collins. Boyd Collins has worked as an online content management specialist for universities, large multinational corporations, and consulting companies for nearly three decades. He helped develop the first web-based distant education system for New Jersey high schools. Some of the companies he worked for include Accuture and SAIC, now Lidos, one of the leading contractors for U.S. military intelligence agencies. He became the lead SharePoint architect for Novartis, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. In this position, he developed many techniques to enhance user engagement. Since his retirement in 2019, he has been researching and writing about the methods used by social media to predict and condition online user behavior. In 2021, he presented his findings on the social media addiction at the International Conference on Artificial Intelligence held at the Juleo San Augustin in the Philippines. Boyd, welcome. Thank you, thank you very much for being here with us today. Well, thank you very much, Frank. I'm glad to be here. And um, I want to start off my talk here with a question that's going to kind of focus what we're going to be talking about today. And that question is, and this is the question I hope to answer in this talk, is what would a human being have to be in order to lead a satisfying life inside a virtual world. So what I wanna do here is I wanna turn this thing around. Instead of looking at this as a consumer, uh, you know, and looking at the metaverse as a product that I'd like to enjoy, I wanna turn it around and I wanna say, what is this product going to do to me? 
How am I going to change if I use this product? Okay, now amidst all the hype about the metaverse, this question rarely gets asked. And there is a good reason for this. The tech giants who are building these worlds don't want us to think too much about the type of person the metaverse targets. Because if we did, we might start to realize that just as with social media, they are not persons at all, but products that they hope to package and sell to generate revenue, just like you mentioned in your introduction. As products, they have no soul, but are mere bundles of biochemical drives to be marketed in the same way as any other commodity. That's one thing Mark Zuckerberg never mentioned during his launch of the embodied internet, also known as the metaverse in October, 2021, when he proclaimed that the metaverse will soon take the place of today's social media. Now, by the end of this talk, my hope is that you will have a clear idea of the user conditioning that must be used on metaverse inhabitants so that they will buy into the illusion that they are being fulfilled through their virtual experiences. These findings are not based on speculation. Already we have nearly two decades of a preliminary version of the metaverse known as Facebook. As a web developer for 30 years, I have extensive knowledge of how social media works. And I've published many articles, including in anthroposophical journals, such as New View and Being Human, and other magazines, such as New Dawn. I've also published many articles in Medium about how social media addicts can escape from their addiction through spiritual practices. Okay, so what does social media tell us about life in the metaverse? For instance, from what we know about social media users, does it help them to become more centered and less distracted by life's trivialities? Or does it turn them into a kind of personal brand that they constantly seek to market? I think most of you probably know the answer to that question. What's important to realize is that when we speak about the metaverse, we are not referring primarily to virtual reality itself. The embodied internet is an extension of the current social media model, but with much more powerful behavioral conditioning tools. Okay, same tools as you summarized at the beginning, but much more powerful, and we'll go into why. In social media, who I am depends on the audience. Instead of being able to stand alone within one's own hard-fought identity, that identity tends to mold itself around one's group. What kind of spiritual progress is possible for someone completely consumed by the pursuit of social acceptance? Staying aware of our spiritual destiny is difficult when we merely echo the opinions of our group. Our ability to lead a genuine spiritual life stands or falls according to how faithful we can be to our own personal sense of truth. If we fail in that, we undermine our capacity for spiritual growth. Now in my talk, 
we will find that the metaverse directly attacks the human capacity to remember its spiritual origin, the foundation of its true happiness. Once we understand what type of human being could thrive in the metaverse, we will see that these worlds are designed to extinguish the memory of the spiritual kernel at the core of our being. Okay. Now, according to tech billionaire Mark Andreessen, one of Facebook directors, and just, just so that in case you've never heard of Mark Andreessen before, he's considered the Yoda to Mark Zuckerberg's Luke Skywalker. You know, Mark Andreessen is the, the Yoda of the tech world. So one of Facebook directors, most people will have a far better life if they abandon what he called the quote unquote real world in a recent interview. In the interview, Andreessen described himself as a member of the reality privileged, which he described as those who live in a real world environment that is rich, even overflowing with glorious substance beautiful settings, plentiful stimulation, and many fascinating people to talk to, to work with, and to date. As a member of the reality privileged, he's concerned for the reality deprived. He said, reality has had 5,000 years to get good and is clearly still woefully lacking for most people. I don't think we should wait another 5,000 years to see if it eventually closes the gap. We should build, and we are building, online worlds that make life and work and love wonderful for everyone, no matter what level of reality deprivation they find themselves in. In other words, rather than trying to make the real world more livable for everyone, the reality privileged are building a metaverse that will provide each member of the reality deprived with their own personal digital paradise. <clears throat> now let's think about this. First, notice his definition of being reality privileged. Okay, this means to live in an environment filled with glorious substance, such as beautiful beaches, and plentiful stimulation, meaning enjoyable sports like windsurfing or technological breakthroughs such as direct mind-to-mind -mind communication or typing messages into your smartphone using only your brain. These are both real, by the way. These are ongoing projects. But what else makes for high-quality reality? Well, fascinating people to talk to, work with, and date. So to achieve a fulfilling life, we need interesting companions, beautiful scenery, engaging sports, along with satisfying work. In other words, Andreessen believes that the needs of human beings can be met entirely through physical, mental, and emotional fulfillments. But they need to be personalized for the capacities and preferences of each user. Now, while the reality privileged will be able to find fulfillment in the real world, the reality deprived will need to be given animated versions of similar pleasures, but customized according to their personal profile. 
However, one question that never seems to get asked is, is there any human essence, any authentic self that underlies these biochemical mechanisms? As we will see, according to leading pundits, the answer is a resounding no. Though few are aware of it, the metaverse has been in operation for nearly 20 years. One of its names is Facebook. Others are Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and many other social media platforms. While Andreessen promised everyone their own personal paradise, he left a few of his company's goals unmentioned. In order to uncover these purposes, we need to clarify that when we use the word metaverse, the term is not equivalent to virtual reality, which is a technology that has many uses, such as flight simulators, but refers to a platform that uses VR in order to achieve wider economic and social objectives. And we're gonna go into what those objectives are, but it's very important that you see the metaverse not as a technology. It's not a technology, it's a social project. It's an economic project. It uses VR, you know, in 50 years, it may use something else. In 2021, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook had begun its transition to a full immersion virtual reality platform. To emphasize the pivotal nature of this shift, he changed his company's corporate name to Meta Platforms Inc. The embodied internet he envisions is an evolution of the current internet that will allow an unlimited number of users to simultaneously share 3D virtual worlds. In the metaverse, each user will be able to design their own personal avatar who will function as their primary identity. As users travel through the metaverse, their personal data will be continuously tracked. This means that they will be able to accumulate credit, and make payments that will be securely tied to their virtual identity. Zuckerberg's vision assumes that we will work, shop, socialize, become educated, and be entertained in digitally fabricated domains. He seems convinced that the metaverse will one day be the primary reality for his platform's users, currently numbering 2.9 billion. So what are the elements that make up extended reality? Well, it's a family of technologies comprising virtual, mixed, and augmented reality. Virtual reality immerses users in a completely artificial environment using headsets and stimulated sights and sounds, along with haptic suits that mimic the sense of touch. So let's go ahead right now and step into the metaverse. Okay, so I'm gonna go down here. Oops, let's go over here. All right, and so I'm going to share my screen. And 
here it is. Oh, wait, no, here it is. All right, and uh, let's uh, share that. Okay, and then I'm gonna turn on the sound. Okay, sound turned on. All right, so let me go to the first video here. Okay, so let's take a look. Everything we do online today, connecting socially, entertainment. Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh-huh. Could feel like. So today we're gonna do something a little bit different. Rather than just focusing on this year's products like a normal keynote, we're gonna talk about the future. So let's start by exploring what different kinds of metaverse experiences could feel like, starting with the most important experience of all, connecting with. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. Hey, are you coming? Yeah, just gotta find something to wear. All right, perfect. Okay, now we're entering the metaverse. Oh, boy. oh, hey, Mark. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Hi. Mark. What's up, Mark? Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh -huh. Who made this place? It's <laughs> awesome. Right? It's from a crater. I met in L.A. Uh, this place is amazing. <laughs> Boz, is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I knew you were bluffing. Yeah. <laughs> Notice that the metaverse has its <laughs> own laws. Let's call her. Hey, should we deal you in? Sorry, I'm running late, but you've got to see what we're checking out. There's an artist going around Soho hiding AR pieces for people to find. Okay. 3D street oh, art? That's cool. That Virtual art there. Okay. So, hopefully that gave you, you know, a bit of an idea about what the metaverse is going to look like. Um, you know, you see that it has its own laws. It has uh, the ability to create your avatars and your avatars to interact. So that's primarily what people mean when they talk about that. Now, there's a second type of uh, extended reality, which is called mixed reality. Okay, so let's let's take a look at that here. I can get this bar going. Hold on just a sec. Okay, so let's take a look at what we mean by mixed reality. What about unlocking more mixed reality experiences? I mean, imagine working at your virtual desk with multiple screens while seeing your real desk so clearly that you can pick up a pen and write notes without taking your headset off. Or, you know, you're doing a workout with a virtual instructor in your living room. It's going to be so Okay, so notice what they've, what they've done here. A mixed reality, it means mixed together actual physical reality with um, different types of illusions that enter into that reality. In this case, you've got your gym instructor who's gone directly into your living room to give you a workout. Up at the top, you can see how many reps you've done, and you can see that um, we're mixing together uh, realities that are created virtually with the physical reality. Now, there is actually a third type of extended reality, which is known as augmented reality. Uh, when we go into augmented reality, I want you to pay careful attention to how the human being in augmented reality, using the augmented reality glasses, 
is being controlled by the reality that they're experiencing. Now, let's start out with the scientists that designed this. And the reason is to simulate how AR glasses will ultimately be able to access data from a 3D map that will help them identify the real world objects in the space around you and better understand your context so they can help you. What's happening here is that the glasses are calculating where Mingfei is in the room, locating and identifying all the nearby objects based on the index mentioned earlier, and figuring out which of those objects Mingfei is interested in by observing her eye movements. That contextual information, in turn, enables the system to offer proactive assistance to Mingfei in a variety of ways. Here, the system knows that she may want to turn on the TV, so when she clicks while looking at it, the system turns it on. Ultimately, her AR glasses will tell her what her available actions are at any time. Hey, assistant, where's my favorite mug? We're also working on a voice interface that will let you locate any object. Here, the system is displaying the current location of the mug. In the future, it might tell her where it is using speech or text. Okay, so we can see that the third type of reality here provides information about the real world objects that you might be looking at or working with. So AR glasses will be able to identify what's in the space around you so that it can understand your physical context and help you interact with those objects. For instance, in the video, you see Ming Fei sit down across from her TV set and her augmented reality glasses immediately detects that she wants to turn on the TV. In other words, the system anticipates and responds to her unspoken desires based on where her eyes are directed. This allows the human being to be integrated into its technical environment as an efficient tool. Notice that Ming Fei is just another tool within this environment. The system will ensure that humans are always aware of what their options are. In other words, the system will tell them what their options are. Okay, so I'm gonna stop sharing there and go back. And hopefully that gives you a pretty good idea about the types of reality that we're dealing with. This is not just something where you just put on a headset and you get into a totally different world. This is inner uh, weaving with the actual physical world so that eventually we may not even be able to tell what are actual items within our physical reality and what are the creations of mixed reality. So to get an idea of how committed the big tech companies are to this. Meta has spent $10 billion in 2021 and is now hiring 10,000 new employees. That's 15% of its workforce to build the metaverse. In addition, Microsoft, Apple, who plans to replace the iPhone with a contact lens that overlays reality with virtual display, and many other major tech companies are all funding embodied internet initiatives. The tech lords clearly want us to believe that we will soon be interacting with physical reality through virtual interfaces that will guide us to make the optimal choices, though for whom is unclear. At the very least, the advertising opportunities will be unlimited. Okay, next, 
what we need to do is to look at how social media keeps its users engaged because the metaverse is an evolution of the same set of services. Now, we're gonna be using the word algorithm a lot in this talk. So what's an algorithm? An algorithm is a set of computer instructions used to make decisions. For instance, in Facebook, an algorithm may detect that a user has recently clicked on a link for a book on virtual reality. The algorithm can then check the user's credit score, and if it finds it above a certain level, it will display a tasteful ad at the right side of the page for a VR bestseller. If the score is too low, the ad might not be so tasteful. Facebook generates revenues by targeting ads at those customers most likely to click the buy button. Algorithms make sure that the user's preferences are correctly identified. So what are the specific techniques used by social media to induce addiction in their users? The following are the essential operations. Number one, the platform collects massive amounts of user data in order to populate profile attributes that identify each user's tastes and triggers. So they profile. Number two, machine learning tools experiment with different combinations of colors, sounds, text, images, and other stimuli to find out what keeps a particular user clicking. And number three, an AI-based predictive engine analyzes user responses in order to generate content likely to keep them engaged. Okay, so that's how users are manipulated. Those are the three basic elements. The purpose of this infrastructure is to predict how users will respond as accurately as possible and to influence their behavior. It's a behavioral conditioning system. The result is that each user becomes a commodity, commodified identity to be managed and exploited for commercial purposes. Now, just as social media uses behavioral conditioning to keep users fully engaged, the metaverse will adopt similar techniques, but it can use all the advantages of a three-dimensional environment. No one including the companies themselves, disputes that social media is consciously designed to make users as predictable as possible. But while the social media illusion works through text messages, photos, and emojis, the immersive sights, sounds, and bodily impact of the metaverse will make it a far more powerful behavioral modifier. Instead of merely showing exciting party photos or seductive texts, it can place users directly into virtual parties and let attractive avatars deliver tempting offers. The embodied internet may soon have as much power to alter human behavior as real life situations. Okay. So very powerful behavioral conditioning mechanisms. 
but what is the model of the human being that the metaverse uses to modify its behavior? It is one that explicitly denies that human beings have an authentic inner self. I mean that literally. One leading pundit, Yuval Harari, says that organisms are algorithms and humans are not individuals. They are individuals. That is, humans are an assemblage of many different algorithms lacking a single inner voice or a single self. As a consequence, the AI which drives the metaverse can manipulate each individual by playing its algorithms. You know, when it says algorithms, it's talking about emotions, playing its algorithms, its emotional keys, because the system does not recognize any central self in its users. The system only recognizes impulses, greed, lust, envy, and the rest. Each acting is a distinct motivating factor. As Harari puts it, there is no authentic self waiting to be liberated from the manipulative shell. Now, in order to achieve its operational goals, the metaverse must directly attack the idea that we have a core of personal responsibility that unites our feelings, thoughts, and desires into an integrated whole. It assumes that what we refer to as our inner self is merely a complex illusion created by the pattern-seeking tendency of our brain. In the virtual world, person is no more than a set of drives whose unitary identity is a fantasy. Just as unlimited sexual freedom can lead to slavery to one's hormones, metaverse dwellers may not only lose control over their sex drive, but come, become incapable of mastering any desire. Once the user has been profiled, Machine learning tools comb through their personal attributes, seeking pleasure centers that can be stimulated and exploited. As these centers are pinpointed, the system multiplies and intensifies user cravings in order to maximize engagement. The less willpower they have, the more obsessive their appetites become, the better the system is working for its owners, okay? Again, the thing to re realize about the profit model of the metaverse is that it is based on getting users to give way to their impulses because those impulses drive them to click the buy button and to purchase. So that's the model of the human being here. Now, so we see that the model of the person in the embodied internet recognizes no unified self that integrates its thoughts, emotions, and desires. Instead, it considers the human being to be a set of appetites, such as sexual urges, food cravings, hunger for social stimulation, yearnings for escape, the need to feel respected, and hundreds of other drives that Harari calls algorithms that constitute our living experience. So, 
what is the type of personality that social media tends to foster? Now, here's a portrait from a person who's considered to be the father of virtual reality, Jaron Lanier. And this is in a very famous book that he wrote um, called uh, Why You Should Delete Your Social Media Accounts. Now, tell me if this reminds me of someone you know. The addicted person's rhythm becomes nervous, a compulsive pecking at his situation. He's always deprived, rushing for affirmation. Addicts become anxious, strangely focused on portentous events that aren't visible to others. They are selfish, so wrapped up in their cycle that they don't have much time to notice what others are feeling or thinking about. There's an arrogance, a fetish for exaggeration, that by all appearances is a cover for profound insecurity. A personal mythology overtakes addicts. They see themselves grandiosely, and as they descend further into addiction, ever less realistically. Unfortunately, it appears that the metaverse seems to be designed to manufacture such narcissists. This is a portrait of psychic fragmentation. Instead of someone whose passions and commitments are integrated into a balanced whole, something inhuman has taken over. We have seen this madness take over whole countries, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Mao's China. But now we have a technology that's specifically designed to induce fanatical hatreds of many different flavors. The main difference from earlier versions is that those who profit from these hatreds are not committed to one flavor over another. The source of their revenue is not ideology, but predictability. The more dogmatic a user becomes, the easier it is to predict what their response will be to a given stimulus. Big tech doesn't care whether a user is a MAGA supporter or a woke ideologue. What drives their profit is the ability to sell predictions to advertisers that are as close to certainty as behavioral science can make them. The less psychologically integrated we are, the more committed we are to ideology over truth, the more we are dominated by passions that can be ignited by verbal triggers, the more controllable we become. If the metaverse can erase our awareness of the transcendent source of our humanity, we become tools of carefully nurtured appetites and fanatical delusions. The person we identify with in the metaverse is a tiny fragment of who we actually are. This greater identity includes a spiritual kernel of which we are for the most part unconscious. Yet it is the foundation of our being. In our relationship to it is the secret of true happiness. Now, what's most disturbing about social media users 
is that in many cases, they have lost the ability to distinguish between the human and the subhuman. By human, I mean cultivating spiritual harmony among our desires, drives, and aspirations. Subhuman points to a fixation on some isolated obsession, like a porn addict. In the first case, the diversity of our human needs is raised to a higher level by weaving them together into a whole in which each part makes its specific contribution. In the case of the subhuman, a fragment of the self tries to take over the whole person, sabotaging it in order to appease a single self-destructive passion. The counterforce to this fragmentation is the higher self. This is the unifying force within the human being. This is not the ego. In fact, it is the opposite of the ego. As Georg Kulowin puts it, the I gives, the ego takes. Speaking broadly, the ego is the principle of selfishness, whereas the capital I embodies the principle of self-giving. To understand the role of the higher self today, we must begin by asking a critical question. What is the role of tradition? Until the 1960s, for most people, tradition played a key role in their sense of self. It provided the soul with an inner cohesion because traditions enabled people's ideas, customs, and motives to be interrelated and form a certain unity within the personality. Traditions provided role models that showed us how we ought to act. But during the 1960s, the power of tradition to enforce this inner cohesion stopped working for most people. Instead of relying on established role models, we had to find our own way into an inner relationship between thinking, feeling, and willing. Dutch anthroposophist Ron Dunselman characterized the situation this way. What we think or feel does not necessarily accord with what we want, or what we feel conflicts with what we do. Or we may find, I think or do one thing, but in my heart, I feel another. This sense of disintegration was and still is felt by many. Instead of being organized into a cohesive whole by traditional role models, thinking, feeling, and willing became emancipated from each other. Once the relationship between these parts of the soul was no longer established naturally, another organizing force had to be found. Many different solutions were proposed, among them psychedelic drugs and various spiritual practices. But the fundamental problem was that in place of tradition, the higher self had to step forward and assume a unifying role. Strengthening the higher self 
requires that we work consciously with the soul forces of thinking, feeling, and willing until they become capable of supporting and balancing each other. This is no simple task, but requires an unwavering dedication to inner growth that few are able to achieve. Rather than face this challenge, many have allowed their personality to become increasingly fragmented. The metaverse is built on the assumption of human disintegration. According to Yuval Harari, the idea that we have a single core identity, an authentic inner self, is merely outdated mythology. He believes that as the global data processing system becomes all-knowing and all-powerful, so connecting to the system becomes the source of all meaning. Humans want to merge into the data flow because when you are part of the data flow, you are part of something much bigger than yourself. In this way, Harari neatly solves the problem of a unified self by accepting it as inevitable and allowing machine intelligence to take over the management of the human soul. Essentially, he's saying that if the higher self is not available to take over the management of the human soul, machine intelligence will do the job. The metaverse represents the birth of a world built on the disintegration of the human person into its emotional, intellectual, and volitional elements. Its confluent hive mind recognizes no unified self <clears throat> but only biochemical algorithms to be regulated. <clears throat> it seeks to coordinate, excuse me. <clears throat> it, seeks, <clears throat> it seeks to coordinate each mind into a kind of machine learning system in which each element learns and operates in concert with every other element. Once the person has been dissolved into these constituent drives, human freedom becomes meaningless because its higher self has been permanently disabled. All that's left of the human beings are emotions, thoughts, and will impulses to be administered by machine intelligence in order to ensure the power and pleasure of the reality privileged. Now, if we can be made to believe that we deserve a world free of suffering, we will become the tools of those able to sell us this dream. The metaverse assumes a certain definition of the human person, which, if it actually corresponded to reality, might truly result in an electronic paradise. But in order to believe in this paradise, we must define the human being as a creature that only requires a personalized flow of pleasures and challenges in order to be happy. To claim the promise of the metaverse, we must abandon the definition of the human person as one whose core identity lives in the world of the spirit. The spiritual nature of the human person guarantees that there will be no end of suffering in this world 
because pain has an indispensable role to play in ensuring that we never become complacent and stop striving towards higher values. All utopias, political, medical, and electronic, ponder on this central truth about human nature. The question we must constantly ask ourselves is, is what I am doing coming fully from myself? Or am I acting under the influence of thoughts, desires, and motivations stimulated in me by external forces? For the sake of maintaining our own freedom, we need to keep establishing and reestablishing our experience of what is truly I, in the higher sense of the word, and what is not I. The makers of the metaverse tell us that they know us better than we know ourselves. Harari tells us that the Google and Facebook algorithms not only know exactly how you feel, they also know myriad other things about you that you hardly suspect. Consequently, you should stop listening to your feelings and start listening to these external algorithms instead. If you heed his advice, you let go of the kernel of spiritual identity, which you have incarnated on this earth in order to develop. You have traded in your own unrepeatable selfhood for access to personalized pleasures that could permanently disconnect you from your higher self. The digital revolution reduces the human being to the pleasures, the achievements, and the fears that can be stimulated through algorithmic manipulation. It can only succeed by isolating us from the greater spiritual order to which we belong. Its primary adversary is our sense for the sacred that awakens that spiritual kernel of which we are for the most part unconscious, and yet is nevertheless the foundation of our being and our relationship to it is the secret of true happiness. In the end, the metaverse is just a cybernetic version of the same temptation to which humanity has succumbed for several centuries, to escape from suffering through technology. The lie is that freedom can only be found by liberating ourselves from all binding commitments to family, country, and spiritual traditions. In the embodied internet, all restrictions on our pleasures can be lifted. When any reality can be conjured up virtually and cost almost nothing, all limits to unending pleasure will be overcome. But the removal of these limits is not freedom. Rudolf Steiner, in his lecture on the origin of suffering, tells us that the pearl is born from the sickness of the oyster from the destruction inside the pearl oyster. As the beauty of the pearl is born out of disease and suffering, so are knowledge, noble human nature, and purified human feeling born out of suffering and pain. Only in suffering can we find the power to resist the totalitarianism of the metaverse. In this spirit, 
I close with a snippet from the most compelling vision of the future that I have found so far in Rob Dreher's book, recent book, Live Not by Lies. He says, but truth cannot be separated from tears. To live in truth requires accepting suffering. In Brave New World, Mond opposed to John the Savage to leave his wild life in the woods and return to the comforts of civilization. The prophetic savage refuses the temptation. He says, but I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. In fact, said Mustafa Mond, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. All right, then, said the savage defiantly, I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. This is the cost of liberty. This is what it means to live in truth. There is no other way. There is no escape from the struggle. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. First of all, over our own hearts. Now I, I turn it back over to Frank. Uh, <clears throat> wonderful, Boyd. Uh, thank you very much for um, that wonderful talk and insightful as well. Um, now's the time that if people want to ask their questions, and please do, um, you could either raise your hand again, you could raise your hand, which is down there at the bottom of the screen. And um, or <clears throat> or write your question in the uh, comment box uh, below the um, the first question that I have from Susan Allison is will people who are immersed in the metaverse be able to work and earn a living what about food production and being able to eat that seems practical yeah it is it's a very good question um if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg's presentation you see that work is going to be at the center of the metaverse um like I said at the beginning um the the Metaverse is going to create virtual environments in which we can work. In fact, a lot of people think that COVID was the kickoff to the idea of working in the metaverse when so many people had to work on Zoom. And now what, what they're going to do is they're going to make Zoom into a metaverse product. So uh, Zuckerberg is very clear that we are expected to work in the metaverse. Not only this, um, I actually had another part of the talk that I was possibly going to go into where I talk about the gamification of work. Uh, because as probably some of you know, if you know about uh, virtual reality, the biggest application today in virtual reality is video games. And the metaverse is based on video game principles. And a lot of the experts in video games want to create work environments that reflect video games. Um, it's much more motivating. It's, it's much more um, in, inspiring. In fact, let, let me just uh, give you a quote here about uh, how video games might be used. Um, many tech leaders believe that for most people, the real world can't compete with the carefully designed pleasures 
the thrilling challenges, and the powerful social bonding afforded by virtual environments. Reality doesn't motivate us as effectively. Reality isn't engineered to maximize our potential. Reality wasn't designed from the bottom up to make us happy. Reality compared to games is broken. In other words, the tech boards are convinced that most people will only be able to have rewarding environments in environments designed to guarantee their happiness. And part of that happiness is guaranteed by creating work environments that are going to be gamified. In other words, they'll be turned into games with rules and rewards and um, uh, many different perks to motivate people. Uh, again, if you look at uh, Mark Zuckerberg's presentation, this will be the work environment. Um, by the way, the, the uh, video that I showed you there was actually showing the home environment and the work environment uh, that uh, is going to be in the metaverse. So it's very central. Okay. The All right. <laughs> So we have a, a question here from uh, Valdemar. I'm going to allow you to talk right now. Go ahead and turn on your mic, Valdemar. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I want to ask you something that is very important for me. Uh, I want to know your opinion about this. My idea, well, there is a fact that uh, we don't know what the, the code used by the brain is. There is no knowledge about that. Mm -hmm. Everything that uses uh, brain impulses and so on are derived empirically, you know, not right. by knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, my opinion is that this code does not exist. And if this is, this is true, then there will be no possibility of downloading uh, or uploading from the, uh, the computer storage something to our memory and mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. So these dream, yeah, these, do you agree with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see, in this case, uh, this transhumanism and all these uh, uh, ideas about uh, uh, interfacing computers with humans, you know, uh, has some limit. The limit of what empirically can be uh, deduced. Mm -hmm. right? Right. Not, it's not the real knowledge of what how our brain works and so on. Mm -hmm. So Har when Harari says that uh, everything we do is 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 a result of algorithms, I think mm -hmm. he doesn't know what an algorithm is. Yeah, I, I see what you're getting at there. And, you know, and he uses the word algorithm rhetorically a lot, you know, rather than using it in this strict sense of the term as a computer algorithm. And if you read his books, you know, especially Homo Deus, you'll see that what he's really talking about is the emotional algorithms that we've developed over the course of evolution. You know, and he gives an example of a baboon, you know, looking at the banana up in a tree that he wants to eat. And then down on the ground, there's a lion that uh, he has to get by in order to get to his banana. So this is what Harari means when he's talking about an algorithm. He's saying that over the course of evolution, the baboon 
the baboons who survived learned to control their appetites for the banana so that they could avoid the lion. And what he's saying is that today the human being is just a collection of these same algorithms, but they're biochemical algorithms. They're not computer code algorithms, but he's making an analogy between the biochemical algorithms that have been developed and uh, computer code. And I completely agree with you about not being able to upload, you know, the human brain into any kind of silicon substrate. Um, this has been shown by, you know, many, uh, you know, highly educated people in computer science that uh, this whole idea of uploading the brain is a fantasy. It'll never come true. But what Harari is trying to do is to push us into a world where we can be controlled through our emotions, through our thinking, through our uh, will impulses via these um, algorithms that are developed by companies such as Facebook. Uh, Facebook has a uh, AI-based tool called FB Learner Flow that studies the patterns of users so that it can derive the impulses that motivate them so that when they get to an ad, you know, somewhere out there on Facebook, they will click on the ad because that ad will be targeted particularly at the impulses that that person has shown through his social media record. Um, just to give you an idea of the extent of this, every user has 100,000 profile attributes, every Facebook user. And those profile attributes are constantly being tweaked with algorithms in order to see what kind of things will motivate that user so that that user can then be marketed toward an advertiser that will profit from that user's profile. So, you know, but it's entirely biochemic. It's not code. So you're, you're correct there. Is that sufficient? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, very well played. Okay. So, Let's get to this next one. Um, this is from Les Monum. Uh, is there a subtle, um, is this a subtle way the Great Reset will influence humanity? And um, any comments on how they might be targeting youth in the educational system with this metaverse? Well, if you, um, there's a very good um, uh, blog and I'm forgetting the name of the user now that does that, but she is a mother in Philadelphia that has been studying the Philadelphia school system uh, for the last 10 years or so. And what uh, she's finding is that they're, they're more and more trying to migrate the way children are taught over to um, a, you know, a kind of a video gaming model of how to, um, you know, how to cheat, uh, train children. And the reason for this is that they want to gradually move these children into a virtual world. And of course, the reason behind the virtual world is that it's much more easy to control the behavior of most people when you control the inputs coming into their senses. And they, they started with children. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get the name of the blog for you. Um, uh, her name is Allison McDowell, 
and uh, she's uh, become quite a prominent blogger. Um, you know, some, uh, you know, she studied it in great detail and she has, uh, you know, a very um, reality-based uh, set of, um, a set of, uh, you know, kind of a detailed presentation on how, how this is going to work with children. But I see that as, as one subpart of the Great Reset. Uh, in other words, it's to um, steer children more and more towards learning via video games, learning via the metaverse. And what that will do is that will put them in an environment where they can be completely controlled because everything that they say and everything that they do is being recorded. And it's also being manipulated by the AI algorithms that are used in social media. So it creates an environment in which it's, uh, it's very easy to uh, you know, keep people under uh, supervision. Okay, um, we have one here from uh, Charlie Robinson. Uh, and um, he wants to know is, uh, do you think there's a certain hidden masochism behind the metaverse? Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there, I, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm not sure I'd call it masochism actually, but I would call it, you know, so, kind of a, you know, desire to have something for nothing you know, a desire to kind of let go of personal responsibility and let the metaverse take over. You know, it's, you know, I, I, I wouldn't exactly call that masochism. I would probably call that, uh, you know, sort of, you know, losing one's self-control, you know, losing the ability to, um, you know, control one's desires, you know, to manage them so that, you can approach life as a, as a single individual rather than just, you know, chasing after whatever the uh, particular fascination of the moment is. And obviously that's what the metaverse wants you to do. It wants you to become an ideologue of some kind or other. It wants you to become, you know, a MAGA fanatic or it wants you to become a woke fanatic. It, it doesn't care what you do. It just cares that you're fanatical about doing it. And that doesn't correlate for me so much with, uh, with masochism. It correlates more with, you know, trying to reinforce a particular identity. It's, it's as if they have a portfolio of identities that they want to uh, reinforce. And as long as those particular types of identities are adopted by a wide range of people, the metaverse is working correctly because it allows them to be easily managed. It'll, it breaks down the unity between different groups in society so that they don't combine together to unite in order to resist this madness. Thank you. Uh, next is uh, Leslie. I'm going to unmute you now. Go ahead, Leslie. Oh, hi. I also just put this in the um, in the chat. The question is, how can we protect ourselves if we don't have a basic understanding of the psychology, neurology, uh, the biochemical kind of thinking that is being used against us? 
if we don't understand the enemy, uh, I, we need to know ourselves, but I think we also need to understand what's being used against us. And I don't see how people can do this without taking on the challenge of understanding those sciences that Steiner urged us over and over to study and um, become familiar with. Yeah, we have to. We, ha we have to understand what's being done to us. You know, there's no doubt about that. But it's really not, you don't have to have a degree in psychology to understand this. You don't have to have a degree in computer science to understand this. All you need to know is that you are a commodity in, in the metaverse. And they want to extract value from that commodity. And the way that they extract value from that commodity is by stimulating the parts of the self that are easy to stimulate. Um, you know, and the lower impulses are tend to be much easier to stimulate than the higher ones. Uh, although the higher ones can often be used to justify stimulating the lower impulses as well. And as long as they can predict your behavior, then they are winning. And see, that's the key to this. They don't really care what they have to do to stimulate a particular emotion or a particular passion or ideology or whatever it is, they don't care. What they care about is that you are predictable. And the more predictable you are, the more profitable you are. So the way that you resist this is by what I was suggesting there, especially towards the latter end of the talk, which is that you, you, come, you come into your own identity. Um, you know, the idea is that every person is unique. You know, the metaverse doesn't want unique individuals, hates uniqueness. It wants people that can be predicted, people that are in large groups, all of which act in the same way. That's what the metaverse wants. It wants to coordinate large, coherent, and homogenous groups. If you cultivate your own identity, if you, if you see yourself as unique, as not part of a group, and then start to develop the higher parts of the self, you know, particularly the spiritual parts of the self that give you a, a separation, you know, an ability to stand above, you know, the passions that, that may drive us a lot of times. Not that passion is bad, but that it needs to be kind of centrally coordinated. It needs to be part of a single individual essence that's completely unique not part of a group, but part of a hard-fought identity. You know, if you, if you read a book like uh, Shazana Zuboff's uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, she goes into tremendous detail about how the algorithms work and what they're trying to do to us. And, you know, since I'm a little bit older, <laughs> um, I remember back in, you know, the, the late 50s, early 60s, and it was mainly common sense that we, you know, learned to be ourselves back in those days. We didn't, we didn't, we felt uh, often that, you know, to be a member of a group was to, you know, falsify yourself in some way. So um, what uh, social media is doing is kind of going in the opposite direction and trying to create these groups that don't have individual identities. So the first thing that you need to do in order to resist the metaverse is to be yourself, 
to become the unique individual that you were created to be. And it, to the extent that you do that, you'll be hard to absorb into these groups. And that's the most effective method that I've seen so far. And there's a lot, lot that could be gone into with that. Uh, thank you, Boyd. Um, <clears throat> what was the name of the uh, book and author again that you just mentioned? Um, the uh, well, I mean, I was I was referring to the Dunsmore yeah. uh, in place of the self. Yeah, um, that was the uh, that's that's a very good book from the anthroposophical point of view that uh, talks about how you can build up yourself rather than. Um, you know, allowing other means such as drugs, in the case of that book, to uh, to take uh, take over yourself. Excellent. <clears throat> okay, so we have a uh, question from Mike MacArthur. Uh, go ahead, Mike, and unmute. Great. Hey, thanks, Boyd. The um, the idea of sponsors. So we're talking about the metaverse as if it's self-sponsoring. But there are there are very powerful sponsors putting up the money behind all this, and it's not just one or two guys. Right. So how do you see the um, the sponsorship avoiding real wars by creating uh, metaverse wars? Because we're seeing in Ukraine, this is hugely wasteful in terms of natural resources. Um, but virtual wars between different homogenous groups who are who are led by the metaverse to despise and hate each other and do virtual war against each other could be just as profitable for sponsors without the collateral damage your thoughts <laughs> yeah it really could well you know what most of the metaverse is based on is video games and obviously you know world of warcraft roblox and fortnite and all of those uh, video games are again based on on combat scenarios in a lot of cases so i think that uh, you know virtual wars that are you know treated as real wars is is quite likely to happen in the metaverse and of course they could be destructive in the same way as physical wars are as well you know one thing i was talking to um frank about just before the meeting uh that uh, you know, kind of surprised me a bit is the amount of money that's currently involved in, you know, the metaverse. And, you know, we know that uh, Facebook is spending $10 billion on it and Microsoft is spending a similar amount. And, you know, we hear about those kind of numbers, but, you know, to give you an idea, um, how much money do you think is spent every year on avatar um, accessories? Hmm. No idea. $100 billion a year, avatar accessories. So this is, a, this is a world where tremendous damage can be done because there's a lot of money involved in this. You know, just like, um, you know, right now we have all the, the issues of, you know, the oil embargo or, you know, sanctions being, uh, you know, levied against Russia. Well, the same thing could be done in a war in the virtual world as well. And the damage would be similar too. economic damage can be done. Tremendous economic damage could be done. Um, again, just uh, to give you a little uh, idea about where we're headed with the metaverse, by 2025, they're expecting that the metaverse will be worth $800 billion. 
by 2030, they're expecting it to be at $2.5 trillion. And uh, there's ways with NFT, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, that people can actually own property in the metaverse. They can own houses. And uh, that's uh, a rapidly expanding market. So if you put that together with wars taking place in the metaverse, then you know, tremendous damage could be done between um, you know, adversaries in, in the metaverse. That's, that's quite possible. Okay, um, <clears throat> here's, a, uh, here's a question from uh, Lola Kerrigan from Johannesburg. Uh, what, um, what role does cryptocurrency have in the metaverse and um, will it be, uh, can it be used responsibly enough to decentralize the power of big tech? Well, that's the hope. You know, if, if you follow the, the big um, metaverse podcast, there's a lot of people out there that are hoping that's exactly what will happen. Um, you know, when I say NFT, that's cryptocurrency, but it's cryptocurrency that can be owned by a particular person. I mean, they, that they can use to own particular artifacts in the in um, cryptocurrency will play a central role. But as far as being able to decentralize it, um, I think that has to do with wider economic. Uh, currents that are going on right now. If the metaverse is owned by, you know, Meta and Microsoft and, you know, uh, Amazon and all the big players, then they're going to be looking towards, you know, some kind of centralized bank-driven cryptocurrency. You know, cryptocurrency will definitely be there, but cryptocurrency doesn't necessarily mean that it's owned by individuals. Uh, there are very large plans afoot right now to have centralized bank-owned cryptocurrencies. And of course, if Facebook owns the metaverse, then they enforce whatever kind of currency is going to be used in that realm. Uh, give you a good example. Yeah, if you follow what's going on in China right now with cryptocurrency, the Chinese are heavily pushing cryptocurrency because they control a centralized form of cryptocurrency. And they're able, you know, through their legal system to, uh, you know, work against those who want to have their own decentralized cryptocurrency. Because cryptocurrency could certainly be used as a tool of centralization. So uh, that's, you know, those are some of the dynamics that are going on right now. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> Valdemir has uh, one more question for you. Um, <clears throat> go ahead, Valdemir. Oh, thank you for the nice talk. Very good. <clears throat> Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I would like to make a comment and see if you agree with me. Uh, so many people are talking about machine learning and working with machine learning. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think most people are not aware the difference between machine learning and traditional programming. Uh, traditionally, a uh, program was uh, programmed by a programmer mm -hmm. uh, writing instructions that uh, he knew quite, uh, precisely or exactly what they would do. You know? mm -hmm. uh, each instruction was very well known. 
-hmm. Now with machine learning, uh, algorithms or programs are being deduced by the computer, are being calculated by the computers, calculating pro uh, parameters that to change the behavior of the program. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there are two problems there. First, most of the time, people don't look at the parameters that were calculated. So they don't know how the algorithm works. Mm -hmm. Secondly, some, uh, some of these machine learning systems are proprietary. I don't know how to say that in English. Uh, sure. They belong, belong to some company and mm -hmm. it's not possible to open them and to, right. to examine the parameters that will be calculated or were calculated. This reminds me of the compass uh, system, judicial system in the US that uh, judges are using to make judgments in trials, right? Mm -hmm. And right. Uh, the company that wrote uh, the compass system uh, has not allowed uh, uh, to open uh, people to open the uh, program and to know uh, how some, uh, how to say, some sentence is uh, is uh, achieved or 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 right. Or, you know. Yeah, uh, I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh, 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 with machine learning, people are losing complete, well, almost completely their uh, their mastering of what the computer does. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And there's a there's a wonderful book called The Big Nine. And I forget the author, but she goes through, you know, the big nine, you know, Facebook, uh, the big Chinese companies. And she talks exactly how they're using machine learning. And she even goes into the medical applications of machine learning and talks about how machine learning can sometimes come up with cures, even cancer cures. But the people that program the neural networks that run the machine learning don't understand how they derive those particular cures. Now, the cures actually do seem to work. <clears throat> you know, they tend, they are effective medical cures that are derived by using, you know, a, a neural network. But then she asks the question, if you don't know what's behind this particular solution, Will you have enough confidence in it to give it to a patient that might die, might be dying from cancer? And you know, this is this is a serious ethical dilemma that uh, you know that machine learning has has caused, because a lot of times even the people who design the neural networks behind the machine learning don't know how the the answer is derived, or it would take so many years to figure it out that, you know, it, it's not practical to do that. But it's a situation in which the machine is taking the lead in finding the solution. And uh, I think that's going to be applied more and more in the metaverse as well. It's already being applied with Facebook's learner flow, um, the tool that's uh, used to predict users. It, uh, it uses machine learning in order to predict what a particular user is going to do or what they're going to like. And it makes about 6 million predictions per second while uh, Facebook is operating. But, you know, but they don't know a lot of times where those accurate predictions come from. They can't derive the steps through which that prediction was made. That's, that's a very important point. I'm glad you brought that up. Great. Uh, 
All right, we'll move on to Andy Dale's question from Pennsylvania. What is the role of the Defense Department and security agencies in developing and controlling of the metaverse? There's a wonderful book called Surveillance Valley uh, by a guy who, it's a Russian guy uh, who migrated to this country. And um, I forget his name at the moment, but he's, he's very well known. And what he does is he goes through the early history of the internet. Uh, particularly, he talks about Google and uh, you know the military roots of Google. Uh, Google was actually spawned through the uh, DARPA, you know, Defense Agency uh, Projects Department, and uh, they they sponsored during the early '90s. They sponsored a lot of the research that went into Google, so they have a direct um, you know, they have a direct interface into what Google does. Um, you know, Google uh, opened up uh, parts of their search engine so that the CIA and the NSA could immediately get access to, you know, who are doing what kind of searches uh, because, uh, you know, they worked directly with Google when it was being put together. It's, it's a fascinating study. It's called Surveillance Valley. And uh, he goes into detail about exactly what the relationship is between uh, NSA, CIA, and um, Google, Facebook, um, all of the major companies. Very tight relationship to the point to where some people say that the CIA actually sponsored Google. It actually created the foundation of Google. There's a lot of evidence for that. Thank you for that. Uh, we have another we have another question from uh, Lala Dara. Hopefully, I didn't mess that name up too much. Uh, she wants to know: uh, Does the metaverse equal to the eighth sphere, and uh, which beings are really behind it? Again, a very good question. Um, I'm not going to speculate and say that it's the eighth sphere, but what I will say is that. If you look at Steiner's uh, predictions about the future, particularly, you know, this particular time span, uh, he predicted that Ahriman would incarnate during this era and that Ahriman would put together a school of magic. And if you read the details of that school of magic, it says something like every person would be able to see the spiritual world but they would have their own individual version of the spiritual world. You know, in other words, it wouldn't be a shared vision. It would be an individual personal vision of the spiritual world. And then people would start to come into conflict with each other as they uh, experience their own, uh, you know, virtual worlds. And uh, if you think about it, think about what the metaverse is gonna be like in about 40 years. Um, you know, is there any difference between that and, you know, billions of people existing in their own reality? You know, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. They'll be able to um, use magical powers. Of course, they'll be enabled through algorithms. But, you know, it's very similar to what uh, Steiner's vision is of what the future will be. Now, will that eventually evolve into the eighth sphere? It could. You know, it could be a part of uh, what, uh, you know, needs to happen in order for that to happen. I don't know. It would be speculation, obviously, if I said that. But maybe some other people have other ideas. 
Great. Uh, let's, um, I, I think we can wrap up on uh, one last question uh, by Daniel Perez. Um, go ahead, Daniel. Oh, hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so uh, I had a couple of things. Um, in, the, in the world of uh, anthroposophy, there's come about, I think even stronger in the, in the era of coronavirus, um, divisions along political lines, which is kind of shocking and, and disturbing when it comes to the fact that spiritual science is not a political movement and there's, it has nothing really to do with politics. Um, but the reverse seems to be happening. People's, you know, caught up in their political ideologies spills into their spiritual views. Um, my question is, um, you know, if you see any way that we can work beyond that kind of um, setting up against each other, uh, as an example, um, I'm, I'm the president of an organization called the uh, uh, Center for Anthroposophy um, that is one of the teacher training organizations in the, in the uh, Northeast and for Waldorf teachers. And I, I raised the question of vouchers, like, you know, as, as an open question, not a political question, but people couldn't really discuss it outside the context of it being a political question when it really has nothing to do with politics, but it's become politicized. And there's so many of these things. So I'm just, I'm just, that's my question is just sort of, if you could comment on that. Well, I'd, I'd love to comment on it because again, as you can tell from the picture here, I go, go pretty far back. And I remember a time when there really was such a thing as being apolitical, you know, that you, you didn't have to make a com commitment that, you, you know, that there were people who tried to be, you know, sincerely objective rather than, you know, constantly evaluate things in terms of a particular ideology, which seems to be so much the way things are now. <clears throat> I trace that directly to social media. You know, there's very little doubt about that. There's a huge literature on it. And the motivating factor behind it is, is that the more somebody is committed to an ideology, the more that they get their identity from a group that has a strong ideology, and they want extreme ideologies. They don't want, you know, extreme centrism, like they had on the social dilemma. They want extremes of various sorts. And because the, the more extreme you are, the easier you are to predict. And the, uh, you know, the economic engine of social media depends on predicting what you're going to do. Because if you can be predicted, then they can charge high prices for the advertisements that you're going to click on. Because you're very, very likely to do that. If they know that, uh, you know, you're a man. They know that you're going to have certain tastes. You're going to do, do things in certain ways. They, they encourage that. I mean, the kind of, you know, flame wars that we've had for the last 10 years, I don't remember anything like that happening, you know, during the 70s and 80s when I grew up. And there was plenty of ideologues back in those days. There were plenty of fanatics. But it wasn't like it is now where you're in this group or you're in this group. And there's no inner dialogue. There's no 
um, you know, trying to find uh, the meeting of the ways between two different divergent groups, you're either this or you're that, and there's nothing in between. And that kind of fanaticism is what drives the internet, and it's what drives so much of the social disintegration that we're seeing now. It's also going to start driving more and more people into the metaverse because there they don't have to be exposed to diversion opinions that might make them feel uncomfortable or might make them feel uncomfortable about their identity and, you know, and start to react. You know, that's, that's a big ingredient in the control systems. 